On today's musical rabbit hole, we've invited a psychologist in to talk about the songs that matter to them and touch on some of the key themes that might drive us to seek help from a psychologist in the first place. Low self-worth, addiction, grief, and we'll talk about those afflictions and ways through them. Your psychologist guest is James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologist. Hi, James. Hi, Ashwin. Thanks so much for having me. This is an interesting one for me to talk about how music's, music reflects the human mind. What do you think is the connection between music and, and emotions? Because it sounds like you're both into mental health and music. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm wearing a ballpark music shirt at the moment that the listeners probably can't see <laughs> or definitely can't see. Um, but I think the link is that music is kind of like another language of expressing emotions. I often talk to clients and, you know, in my own sort of like playing guitar and, you know, being in a couple of bands, it's it's a language that helps you sort of express those emotions when you just can't find the words or you feel like your your throat's really tight and, you, you know, you can't get a word out. You're in a bit of a freeze state. Do you find it quite cathartic for your clients do you suggest that they use music as part of their treatment yeah definitely yeah i um i often talk about my own experiences with you know creating uh, playlists based on emotions um having a a playlist that can really help you when you're feeling quite overwhelmed one when you're feeling quite down and one when you feel like you need a bit of a boost up yeah when you sent me your playlist and you mentioned this when we were just setting up for this interview that it it covers angst a lot as well (laughs) But isn't that the point of tragedy? It was meant to be sad so that you could feel catharsis by watching it and you feel better afterwards, like there's some healing power in tears. Can you tell me about the value of angsty songs? Yeah, I've, I think angsty songs are fantastic. My, um, my Spotify rapped really called me out last year and said, oh, wow, you've been listening to a lot of angsty things. Um, you know, some Midwest emo kind of uh, bands from the mid-2000s. But I think it's a great way to, you know, help you feel less alone and less isolated because our mind often becomes our our worst enemy rather than our best friend. And it says, you know, we're the only ones feeling this emotion. We're the only ones that are ever going to feel this emotion. But then you find this song or this album or this artist that just captures what you want to, you know, express, but you just don't have the words and they, they say it for you. Well, let's go through the human mind then and some of the afflictions that can affect it with your song playlist. The first topic you wanted to talk about is low self-worth. Where does that usually come from and who's most at risk? Yeah, well, it can come from a number of places. It, um, there's no one single cause, but it can you know, obviously be from trauma in someone's past, um, past life. It can be from uh, current sort of situational factors that are making them feel like negative sort of um, comments by others, especially those in authority positions, parents, bosses, um, you know, uh, religious leaders, depending on, you know, what your community is. Um, there's a lot of factors there that can be really at play. I like to think of it as a bit of a spider web where there's all of these different points on the spider web that are all really, really important. And there's no single one that is that like the spider web. So multiple causes, how does it then manifest in a person? How does someone with low self-worth behave and think about themselves? They often get stuck in negative thought cycles. And I know I've definitely been in these cycles in the past and it's very hard to escape where our, our negative thoughts come up of, you know, I can't do this. I'm not worth it. Um, this is too hard. I'll never be able to achieve this. I'm letting people down. I'm a burden. They then, you know, bring up some really negative emotions like loneliness, isolation, depression, sadness, anxiety, which then change our actions. And they 
well, our actions don't become very helpful and it actually makes us withdraw more. We want to pull away from the people. We want to pull away from the things that make us us, the activities, the values, the hobbies. Um, we become less uh, sort of we're not acting within our values and then that actually reinforces those negative thoughts because, well, yeah, I am, you know, not doing these things. I am failing. Do people also have a limited capacity to help someone with low self-worth? Like they'll have a couple of goes at saying, oh, no, you're fine, you're doing well, and then eventually they find themselves getting tired and they pull away. So the person with low self-worth finds that they lose their friends just naturally and which just reinforces that belief that, oh, I'm not very good. 100%, yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy. And it can be a really brutal, vicious cycle when, you know, we're feeling really negative about ourselves. But then we withdraw and other people, well, we can't expect them to be our therapists because they're meant to be our friends and family. They provide a, you know, a part of the, the helpful spiderweb, but they're not the whole answer, the whole, you know, the whole key to unlock the door. Um, and they do start to, you know, give us a bit more space and, you know, feel like, oh, you know, I need to take a break from this person, which then makes us feel worse. So if they do then come to a psychologist for help with this, how do you go about treating low self-worth? Yeah, well, it starts by explaining the sort of cycle that they're stuck in to, you know, build our insight. It's kind of like, um, actually, a client explained this really greatly to the, to me the other day. Um, they were talking about how they were so focused on the little parts of the cycle of thoughts, feelings, and actions. It was like they were looking at a single leaf in a whole forest, and they were unable to pull back from this single leaf, and they just kept getting caught up on this leaf, and then they got overwhelmed that this is not the only leaf in that forest. So when we did this sort of taking a step back activity on the whiteboard and just put some of the, you know, the data in, the thoughts, the feelings, the actions, it was, you know, might not be like helping them pull back and see the whole forest, but it was just sort of zooming out a little bit so we can see a little bit more of the picture. And then we talk about the strategies on how to get off that cycle. What are some of the strategies? Is it challenging your negative self-talk or, or what's, the, what's the way into, once you've got that perspective, what do you do next? Yeah. Challenging the negative self-talk is a great way of doing it. Um, you can use a logic-based one where, okay, well, my mind's not the most accurate thing in the world. So what are some real sort of, you know, real world evidence things that can tell us that this is true or not true? Another way is using compassion where it doesn't really matter about what the real world is saying. We can come with compassion. And I like to think of that as imagine what, you know, that person in your life that gives the, just the grade A advice, the top tier advice would say to you in that moment back or the grade A advice you would give to them if they came to you with that exact same thought. That sounds really interesting. It sounds like you're talking about getting more awareness stepping outside of yourself a bit because we're going to finish on a positive song. And I was thinking, what is the positive mood that you end up with at the end of therapy? Is it joy? Is it resilience? It sounds like awareness must be amongst those values you want people to end up with. Definitely. I'd say uh, awareness and insight is a great, great tool um, that you end up with at the end of therapy, but also stability because life is always going to have a varying mixture of emotions, the roller coaster. But we just want that roller coaster to be a little more comfortable and a little more kind. We want it to be the, you know, the junior coaster rather than one of those like wild ones at Dreamworld. Yeah. Okay. All right. I like that metaphor. And that's the great thing about therapy. You have such nice metaphors that put life in perspective. Um, <laughs> I'm, yeah. a, I'm a very visual person. It, it works. So let's talk about this low self-worth song. Which song have you chosen and why? Well, I've gone with uh, Alex Leahy's um, song called I Haven't Been Taking Care of Myself. And 
This song's kind of, when you look into the lyrics and some of them just, they hit home for certain parts of your life. Um, and this one is very much on that low self-worth and how it then impacts you, but then also has those flow-on effects to other people. And it's hard to have a stable relationship when we don't have a stable relationship with ourselves. You're listening to psychologist James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologist, taking us through some of the afflictions of the human mind and songs to go with them. And this is Alex Lay. I haven't been taking care of myself.
Alex Lay, haven't been taking care of myself. On today's musical rabbit hole, we we have brought in a psychologist to draw on the years of experience in therapy and talk about some of the key afflictions that people present with in the therapy room and songs that might go with them, songs that might help them. Your guest today is psychologist James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologist. James, the second emotion or condition that we wanted to talk about was addiction. What would you like to say about that? Yeah, addiction is a heavy topic. And I think it's, um, when we think of addiction, we think of, you know, very like hard drugs like heroin and things like that. But I think, especially in Australia, you know, alcohol is so widely available. And it's also a, a big one that I see in clients where they've been drinking too much um, and they're not happy and they've been using it as a coping strategy. Are there any commonalities between all these different types of addiction that you see? Yeah, definitely. Commonality is usually that we're trying to mask something or we're trying to avoid negative emotions, that distress, because it's uncomfortable. These, you know, uh, substances, they give us a short-term relief, but unfortunately in the long term, it really, you know, messes things up physically and emotionally. Can that negative emotion be something as simple as boredom, which is why we get addicted to our phones? Very much, yeah. Boredom can be a big trigger and it's a a big trigger that I've worked with a lot. Um, People uh, have reported, you know, smoking weed, uh, drinking lots of alcohol because boredom is such an uncomfortable and distressing thing for them. So how do we get comfortable with boredom? It's, uh, well, boredom's an uncomfortable emotion, but it's an uncomfortable emotion for a good reason. It's supposed to motivate us. It's supposed to make us go and do something that's positive. Oh, I'm feeling bored. So why don't I go pick up the guitar or why don't I just, you know, grab the car keys and, you know, just get out and go for a drive. It's, um, it's not meant to be a long-term emotion. If we're feeling perpetually bored, then probably, you know, some bigger changes need to happen in our work life, our relationships, et cetera. Are you seeing more people present to you with addiction? Yeah. Since COVID, it's been um, quite big. I've worked a lot in uh, corrective services and there's been um, a lot of addiction sort of work that I've been doing with clients in there. And then now that I'm working in the community um, on the north side of Brisbane, it's, yeah, still seeing quite a number. What are the most effective ways to treat addiction? Well, one, uh, just like we talked about before, building a bit of an insight about well, how this sort of you know, substance keeps us in a negative thought cycle and a negative feeling cycle. And sort of just using very simple strategies. I, um, I really like simple strategies because when our mind's a busy place, we don't need anything else to complicate it and feel overwhelmed by so simple strategies like, you know, um, finding the sort of the motivation and the reasons as to why you want to quit or cut down and sort of setting a bit of a parameter, a bit of a goal and sticking to that goal and telling people that you've got that goal of quitting. So are you talking about taking baby steps to quit? When you say parameters, what's that about? Yeah, baby steps are great. Um, you know, I, I mention this to a lot of clients pretty much every week or two. And, you know, you hear the, the stories of, you know, uh, someone saying, you know, oh, I quit cigarettes, you know, 40 years ago. I just one day just put them down and I never picked them back up. That's fantastic. But that's not the regular story for a lot of us. When we um, have these addictions, it's often that we try and quit and then we, you know, re- relapse or we lapse. And it's often a sort of a process and a, and a cycle of quitting many times and then finally getting to a point where that quit is longer than the rest. How much faith do you have in willpower and what have you learned about it from doing the work that you do? I think willpower is a, a brilliant tool. It's a, you know, it's a tool in our toolbox um, and you do have to have it. But sometimes if we're lacking that willpower, focusing really in on sort of the motivating factors, 
So who am I quitting for? Is it for me, my kids, my friends, my family, my boss? What am I quitting for? Is it my job? Thinking about these motivating factors can really help increase that willpower when you know you get to that point and the cravings hit hard. Motivating factors, take baby steps, anything else like surrounding yourself with the right kind of people that can help you to quit. What else can you tell us about quitting addiction? Yeah, it's often a uh, frustrating process, that's for sure. Um, it can sort of feel that, you know, we, we could be sort of, uh, you know, sober or drug-free for, you know, a couple of months, but then we have a lapse where we do use again or we drink again and we can feel really, really down on ourselves, like we've just thrown away all of our progress, but that's not the case. When we look at the actual sort of like how our brain works, we haven't immediately gone back to where we were, you know, X amount of months ago. We've just taken a little bit of a dip in that progress and reminding ourselves and being compassionate that it's okay. This is actually unfortunately part of the, the journey and it's just a small little dip in a much longer sort of linear progress. I'm trying to think of the words that have come up repetitively in our conversation so far. Perspective has come up a lot and self-compassion has come up. That sounds like it's going to be critical to lots of different afflictions. Definitely. Compassion is a huge thing. There's a lot of good research um, being uh, completed by Professor James Kirby at the University of Queensland. And um, he's looking at compassion-focused therapy. It's been his sort of, you know, bread and butter for so many years now. And the more I learn about it, the more I love it. Just that when our brain gets really, really rude towards us, just coming back with that compassion can really help diffuse the intensity and the power that our brain had. What's the song you wanted to focus on to deal with addiction? Well, uh, I guess Alex Leahy's looked at it a little bit as well um, with I Drink Too Much, but the main song that uh, focuses on addiction is by Elliot Smith, a uh, brilliant singer-songwriter from the sort of, I think he's probably 90s, and it's um, his song Between the Bars. Okay, what can you tell us about this song? Or has it played a role in your life as well? Uh, look, it's been, a, I think, the, the themes of you know sadness and feeling despair in that song has definitely hit home. Um, I'm fortunate enough to not have had a, an alcohol problem, but I've helped a lot of people with it. And some of the things that Elliot Smith talked about in this song really resonates with a lot of people in that the drink is calling my name and um, that it feels like this overwhelming, you know, urge to go and pick up the bottle. This is Between the Bars by Elliot Smith. Drink up, baby, stay up all night With the things you could do, you won't But you might, the potential you'll be That you'll never see The promises you'll only make Drink up with me now And forget all about the pressure them away the images stuck in your head people you've been before that you don't want around anymore that push and shove and won't bend to your will I'll keep them still drink up Kiss you again between the bars. 
Between the Bars by Elliot Smith here on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. You are with psychologist James Carroll, who is our musical rabbit hole guest this morning, taking us into the human mind, some of the afflictions that you might have to deal with and some of the ways out. The next one we wanted to talk about is grief, possibly the most guaranteed emotion in life if you've ever loved someone or something. James, what can you tell us about grief that perhaps might not be obvious? I mean, well, obviously grief is heavy. It's a heavy, heavy emotion that usually you feel physically as well as mentally. But it's also not exactly the, you know, getting through it isn't that classic cycles of grief. Um, The study that originally looked at the cycles of grief was about uh, people that were at the sort of end of their life and what sort of emotions they were going through, not actually the family and what they were going through. Um, people think that they've got to go through all of these cycles to fully process it, but it's, it's not really the case. And you're allowed to sort of jump between some of those stages. This is the five stages of grief that's in pop culture at the moment. Yeah. So how would you tell a client to, if someone's just gone through a major bereavement, a loss of someone, and they're thinking that they're going to go through these five cycles, what would you advise them is actually going to happen with, to them? I'd probably tell them that it's okay if some of those cycles transition and you feel like you're not progressing in the way that, you know, the internet article said. And it's okay to jump back and forth between them and also feel one a lot more heavily and more intensely than another. I often talk to people about grief and and try and find out, you know, one of the things why they they get stuck in grief. Because grief is a very normal and, you know, good emotion in the fact that it's you're caring about someone that has left you're caring about someone that you can't see anymore. But if you get stuck in that grief and it's quite persistent, that's when it can be really hurtful and really, you know, alter your mood and, um, and long-term cognitions. If someone is stuck, is that a sign that perhaps they've lost hope for the future? They don't see anything else good after this particular loss or is it revealing something else when they get stuck? Yeah, I think hope is a big part of it. It's hard to see hope when uh, you lose someone that was your whole world. I, um, especially when, you know, when you lose someone that you care about, you can't exactly, you know, go and have another conversation just to sort of wrap things up and feel like you've got some some release. I often talk to people about writing some things down, writing a big letter, and whether that letter is, you know, half a page or a million pages, and then, you know, you can sort of send it off into the universe in a way. You can, um, you know, put it on a barbecue and burn it, or you can post it and, you know, post it somewhere else, or you can bury it. It's up to you. When I think about this subject, because we're always, I feel like many of us are trying to shield ourselves from grief, and I'm wondering how helpful this is. Can I I'll give you an example? I, I watch a lot of physics videos, introduction to physics videos, and some of them will say, you know what? We're not atoms. Those atoms are just vibrating waves. And you know what? Those vibrating waves are just the emanation of geometry existing in multiple dimensions. And perhaps behind that is pure consciousness. So I try to get away from anything that can cause grief, like humans and pets and people, and and retreat to this world of multidimensional cubes. Because I think that's what I really am. I'm just this multidimensional cube. There's no love. There's no grief. It's all just mathematics and data one day just to try to, to put myself in a bigger picture to save myself from grief. I'm just wondering how helpful is, is it 
to you know, retreat to those kind of pictures and explanations for who we are, those cosmic explanations, or are we just running away through this false detachment and, you know, you know, sometimes you can try to detach yourself from life. Is it, is it a, a failed enterprise to try and get to, to think that way? I think that detachment can be a good thing in certain circumstances. It's, um, it's a bit of a distraction from those negative, intense emotions. But if we're doing it on a regular basis, it can sort of go the opposite way and it become, um, becomes more unhelpful if we feel detached from our emotions and it's hard to really connect with the, well, the present moment. If we're constantly thinking about the bigger things, it's hard to see us and how we fit into that. So you want us to dive into life, not run away from it? A little bit, yeah. It's the principles of mindfulness. It's living in this moment and, you know, our brain likes to do a lot of mental time travel to try and make sense of things. It's trying to think about the future with that like real anxiety, like who's going to be there? How am I going to feel? How are they going to feel? All of these questions that we don't have answers to or the past of, you know, why didn't I say this? Why did I say this? Why didn't I do that? Why did I do that? And we're constantly being like a tug of war between these past and future when really we can't control either of those directly. We can only control the right here, right now. And that's that's the sort of concept of being mindful. What do you think are the most effective ways to get past grief that you talked about the five stages and let people be open to um, not going through those five stages. Any, any other tips that you have for when it comes to moving through grief? Yeah, feeling it. Very genuinely just letting yourself feel it. If it sticks around for a long, you know, longer period than you'd like or find helpful, then seeing someone and really having a, a personal space to vent that and really you know, learn some strategies and, and fill your toolbox with some tools to get through it. But allow yourself to feel it is a big thing because when we don't feel emotions and we try and avoid them too much, it can kind of get like we're trying to pack a suitcase for a, you know, a week away and we've packed way too much. We're sitting on the suitcase and we're trying to zip this thing up. And even though once we get that zip up, it's, you know, we can't see the emotions, the clothes inside, but when we're carrying it through the airport, we can definitely still feel them. Roller coasters and suitcases. I just love the visual metaphors <laughs> that you have. For I pull happening. them out of thin air sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But it is true because what's the damage from not properly feeling grief? Do, do we become more susceptible to depression, to irritability? What happens to us? Yeah, we become more dissociative, which means just we're not connected. We can often feel that we're just not really sort of living life as the person we are. We're not connecting with the values and hobbies that we have. We're not connecting with the people that we you know, care about or once cared about. We feel really disconnected and it can lead to that sort of feelings of depression or just, you know, incredibly high anxiety about, well, I feel helpless. I can't control anything and I'm so distant. I'm so far away. What's the song you wanted to bring in to represent grief? Uh, it's a classic. It's the Rolling Stones and their song, Paint It Black. And what's the connection to grief of this song? Well, when you listen to the lyrics, it talks about, you know, a man that has lost someone he cares about and how he can't bear to stand anything that resembles happiness or positivity in the world. Um, there's a couple of lines about, you know, I see these bright colors and I want them black. I want them to, you know, be a representation of how I feel on the inside and that the world is hopeless. You're listening to psychologist James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologists. And this is Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Oh, 
That is Painter Black by the Rolling Stones. You are listening to ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. I'm Ashwin Seca with James Carroll, a psychologist and musical guest, or guest today on the musical rabbit hole, where we are talking about afflictions that you can go through, mental afflictions, and the songs that perhaps represent those afflictions and maybe point to a way out of them. James, so someone's come to you, they've come to you with one of these afflictions, grief, low self-worth, addiction, what happens at the end of a therapy course of a few weeks, months, years? Are you supposed to end up happy, self-aware? How would you like people to end up at the end of therapy? More resilient. I think uh, resilience is a, a great thing. And the fact that life is always going to have some pretty heavy and negative emotions because they're important. They tell us certain things aren't correct. But it's when they stick around that they become really unhelpful so resilience to get through those rough times, to be able to still see the, you know, the hope, the, you know, the sense of control, the sense of independence, the sense of autonomy. 
all of those things. That resilience message, you see a lot of internet psychologists, internet um, speakers going, you know, tidy your room, step up, don't be a victim. That message of resilience is quite common now, but is it quite hard to get to that? Can you just repeat that mantra and become resilient or does it take quite a lot of work to get there? It, uh, it takes a lot of work. Um, some things will come quite natural to people and other ones might be a little bit harder. But resilience is something that does take time to build a sort of, you know, solid, stable base of resilience. But it's also not just forcing ourselves to do those things and putting this pressure on us because then that can sort of go the other way where we now feel overwhelmed of why can't I do these simple things? So being compassionate in those moments of, well, this week is a really, really hard week. Why, you know, like if I, if I can't do these things, that's okay. But if I do do them, that's a massive win. Compassion is a really great tool in resilience. That's interesting. So the monk and the warrior aren't that separate because the monk, the compassionate one, is compassionate, but that in turn enables you to be strong and resilient when you face challenges. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of really sort of toxic positivity in terms where people are saying, just be happy, just, you know, don't stress so much. And it's like, cool, thanks, I'm cured. <laughs> yeah. When in reality, it comes through, you know, changing our negative beliefs, changing our relationship with ourselves, and being that compassionate person that we might not have in our life. That's interesting because when you hear those people who just are full of those mantras, they sometimes attack psychologists and psychiatrists for enabling your victimhood. They say, oh, you go to these people and you get stuck in talking about your childhood and how things were terrible for you. But it's me, I'll get you out of it by just, you know, getting you to take action straight away. So what would you, what would you have to say about that characterization? Well, I'm a, I'm a man that bases all my stuff on research. And thankfully, the research is on the side of psychology and psychiatry rather than sort of those more, you know, toxic sort of positivity message people where you just have to do this and you have to do that. Well, have to and should do uh, strong, intense words that can be overwhelming. The research says that if we change them to be more compassionate towards ourselves, like, oh, I would like to do this or this may be beneficial for me, it becomes a whole lot easier to actually get to the end goal rather than, you know, you might have a slight improvement listening to sort of these, these, um, these people. But in the long term, the research says it might actually be a little bit more detrimental. What song did you want to bring to us to represent the end of therapy or the positivity that can come afterwards? The song is uh, by Journey and it's Don't Stop Believing. And uh, this song was actually written um, when uh, one of the guys in the band was, you know, he's just moved across country. He's, you know, made this massive change to try and, you know, pursue this art form of music. And he was, you know, on the verge of giving it all up and saying, no, I'm just coming back. I'm going back home. I'm going to go back to my job and just, you know, do whatever it is that's not this. And it was a, a call to his, um, his father, I believe. And his dad said, no, you know, you've got to stick it out. Don't stop believing.
A singer in a smoky room A smell of wine and cheap perfume For a smile they can share the night It goes on and on and on and on Strangers waiting Up and down the boulevard There's shadows searching in the night Don't Stop Believing by Journey here on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. On our musical rabbit hole, we've been dealing with the sarcophony of emotions that you can go through as a human being with psychologist James Carroll. James, is there any message you'd like to leave us with as we go ahead with our lives confronting some of those different emotions? Yeah, look, I could be really like a Hollywood and say, just don't stop believing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think um, a really good theme of our chat today has been compassion of, you know, uh, feeling emotions, but being compassionate towards yourself and, you know, being that kind person back to yourself rather than, you know, getting caught up in those negative loops. James Carroll from North Brisbane Psychologist, appreciate your time on this fascinating dive into the human mind. Thanks so much for having me, Ashwin.